Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. The power of lived experience stories not only enable us to feel emotional and inspired, but can also be the pillars we need for change, particularly as it relates to our systems and processes for health and well-being. This week's podcast guest, Tara J. Lal, has a mission to use the voice of lived experience to affect meaningful change for our frontline workers at all individual, organisational and community levels. Tara is a professional firefighter and peer support officer with Fire and Rescue New South Wales. She's also a PhD candidate at the University of New England and was awarded the inaugural Australian Rotary Health Scholarship for research into the mental health of emergency service workers in 2018. Her research focuses on understanding the impact of suicide on firefighters. Tara is a mental health first aid instructor and has managed, to, uh, has managed the psychological wellbeing program in Fire and Rescue New South Wales working with researchers at the Black Dog Institute to implement programs aimed at building resilience and improving mental health outcomes for firefighters. She was a finalist in the Rotary Inspirational Women of the Year Awards in 2017. Stay tuned as Tara tells us her story and lived experience as both an active firefighter and survivor of a traumatic childhood. She will highlight how growth can emerge uh, after trauma and what we as individuals, organizations, and communities can do to affect that transformation through working together, shared responsibility, and a compassion-first approach. All right, welcome everybody, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Pebble in the Pond. With me, it gives a great pleasure to introduce Tara Lal. Tara, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here. Tara, you've got a lot of experience, and you've done a lot, achieved a lot already in your professional career. Tell us where are you from and what was it like growing up for you? Well, I grew up in, in the UK. I was born in England and I came over to Australia in 1995. So I've been here for quite a long time now. But my childhood was spent in the UK and I guess my childhood was quite difficult and traumatic, although I had no idea at the time that what I, I had experienced was trauma. And it's only really, you know, been in the last probably 15 years that I've come to understand my childhood experiences and certainly how they impact me now as a first responder and as a firefighter in my job and in my role. So it's only really been fairly recently that I've come to understand the impact of my childhood and and how that's played out throughout my life. 
and I lost my brother when I was 17 to suicide. But there was a backdrop throughout my family of my father had quite significant mental health issues throughout his childhood and throughout his entire life. And I think realising the impact of intergenerational trauma Mm. and how his traumatic life experiences played out then throughout our family and without having access for him to significant help and support was, I think, certainly had an impact then on, on how that played out in our family. And I remember sort of even before he was admitted, he had several hospital admissions during my childhood. And I don't think I really had any idea at that time of how his illness And he had various different diagnoses of bipolar, of schizoaffective disorder, of major depression. So he had several different sort of diagnoses, but how his hospitalizations and how he was and his ability to be a parent and to be a loving father, how much that was impacted by his own childhood and how that played out in our family. And having lost our mother also had cancer when she got cancer when I was eight and she died when I was 13. And that led to my father having a hospital admission directly after her death for about a year. So that, you know, grieving as a 13-year-old without any parental support, you know, that I didn't realise at the time how much of a significant impact that had on me and my elder brother and my sister. And that sort of played out in the years after that and I'm sure had quite a significant impact certainly on my brother's mental health and probably contributed fairly significantly to his death ultimately. So he died when he was 20 and he was at Oxford University. He was incredibly smart and intelligent and incredibly socially aware and and very compassionate and sensitive and had a huge sense of social justice, which I think as a young person is quite difficult to cope with when you look at the inequality in the world. He spent time in India and, you know, how do you make sense of that as a young person who's also struggling to come to terms with his own grief? So I think there were many things that played out throughout our family and, you know, obviously impacting my mother's and father's relationship. And so I think all of that, you know, I didn't realise the complexity of that and how multi-layered those difficulties and challenges are and have been and how much they've defined me as I've grown up and all the things, you know, it was only later in my life when I started to write my own life story down and go on my own therapeutic journey to realise the impact of that childhood trauma and I always had this sense that I was hypersensitized to certain things and to rejection and abandonment and and I but I couldn't understand it and then from a sort of neurophysiological um, perspective when I started to understand the neurophysiology of childhood trauma and what happens in your nervous system it all made total sense it was like absolutely that's how that's played out in my life and then obviously as a first responder and um, experiencing potentially traumatic events as a first responder, then that all kind of that accumulative, gentle chipping away of things that really defines who you are in the end. And I think it's difficult to untangle that to become, to actually come to know yourself and become whole again, because you feel that your experiences absolutely define you and who you are. And to untangle that was a very, very, very long journey for me to be able to untangle that and sort of pull back all these layers that I'd kind of created around myself to try and keep myself safe. So I think that's what's led me really into a lot of the work that I do to, to see from that much more holistic perspective of how our experiences play out, not just in our personal lives, but in our professional lives, and that you can't differentiate those things because the responses that I have to any one incident are very much based on my own past 
personal experience that I brought with me into the job and obviously through the last 17 years as a firefighter as well. And I think we need to acknowledge that in a better way of how our personal experiences interact with our professional experiences to better understand people and and their stories and their journeys and therefore also what their needs are. Well, firstly, obviously, sorry for your losses. Yeah, I mean, even at such a young age, it would have been very tough for you to deal with that. And I know you spoke yesterday during your presentation, uh, and I was speaking to someone recently this morning about it as well, just about the impact of mental ill health experiences in the family and and the vicarious trauma that and the impact that has on other family members. Do you feel like we're getting better at trying to recognize that earlier compared to, I mean, we're, we're probably talking back in the early 90s for you, I'm guessing around that time, to where we are today, 2022. How do you feel we're going with that? Not just the, not just the care and attention for the person suffering from mental ill health, but also the carers, the family around that as well. Yeah, I think that we are getting better, but I think we're just scratching the tip of the iceberg at the moment. And I think it's only really, and certainly organisations like Fortum Australia, I think have made it significant inroads into acknowledging and recognising how important family members are in the whole kind of system, if you like, and and those social networks are so important. And we know that our relational health really lies at the core of our wellbeing, but we don't really invest in how to, what does good relational health look like? What does it feel like? And I think most people wouldn't know that because it's not integrated into our wellbeing programs to actually understand that and to, you know, to hear the voices of family members because they're the ones that see when something starts to change because they're the people that, you know, and, and colleagues as well because, you, you know, you, you spend a lot of time at work. So it's those kind of people in those that aren't, you know, mental health professionals but they're the ones that see the people close to people, whether that's family members or colleagues, that see changes and that see when something's happening to the person that they care about and something's changing. And we need to dive deeper into that to help people to either, to one, for us to learn from their experiences about what sorts of things have they noticed at home, what, what's, what's coming up for people, what is it that's made them realise that and also how do we then support them how do we support family members? How do we support frontline workers to be able to even know, you know, how do I have support at home without exposing my family to vicarious? And most frontline workers wouldn't know that. It's like they either say nothing because I must not, I don't want to expose my family, so I'll quarantine it, which we know isn't helpful. Or, you know, how do I have that? So how do I speak about how I feel without speaking about the nature of particular incidents that might then potentially expose my family to vicarious trauma. A very important point and a good point you raise. If we look at when 95 you came to Australia, what made you want to come to Australia and what did you get up to? I had actually done a, a, my first undergraduate degree in physiology in Scotland and when I was doing that degree I was thinking what do I do with a degree in physiology? I don't know, I just knew I was fascinated by the human body and how it works. And I did a, a computer-based program, careers program, that kind of asks you lots of questions and then spits out jobs for you. So number one was a fireman because it was, it was obviously gender, you know, <laughs> gender equality hadn't quite reached that stage in the 90s. So it told me I should be a fireman. And number two was a physiotherapist. And I wanted to travel. I always had a huge passion for traveling. So I, I came to Australia backpacking 
and came originally just for three months and then ended up spending a year here and met my, well, my ex-partner now, but met him. And he said, stay. And yeah, wow, what an, you know, I absolutely love Australia. I mean, I think there was, in retrospect, there was probably a little bit of, you know, there was a lot of pain for me in, in, in England and yeah. in London. And I had lost half my family, so I didn't feel, you know, it, it didn't feel like a, a nurturing, safe, lovely place to be for me. And so there was a little bit of that too. And I came to Australia and nobody knew me. Nobody knew my history. I was no longer defined by my past. I could just be me and people just saw me for me. And that was very, very freeing for me to just be seen for who I was at that, at that time rather than seeing this incredibly anxious, grief-stricken teenager, which is how everybody in, back in England knew me. So I kind of, it helped me to kind of shed a lot of that, I think, by being here, which certainly had its really incredibly powerful and good points, but also had certain things that perhaps weren't that healthy in, in kind of just trying to ignore the pain of my past, really, which, you know, eventually then, you know, did have to revisit as I think that we all need to, you know, the things that are unprocessed are the things that do us damage. So I did eventually have to return to that, but there was an element of being able to leave that behind when I first yeah. came to Australia. But, you know, you, you bring your troubles with you ultimately wherever you go. And did you settle in Sydney? Yes, yeah, yeah. I settled in Sydney, so I came originally to Sydney, and then I've never let. And I absolutely love Sydney. I love, I love the outdoors. I love the nature. I love like the ocean. For me, is just the ocean gives me life, and you know, just to be able to from living in London and growing up in London to be able to go down to the beach in the morning and see dolphins and whales and be in the water is just you know I'll never ever lose the gratitude and appreciation to be able to have that. So. Did you go down the physiotherapy path or, or did you go, which, which path did you go? I did. did so a... I then went back to study physiotherapy at oh, Sydney University. So, and unfortunately then they didn't have a postgraduate master's that they have now. So I had to do a whole undergraduate. So I did four years undergraduate as oh, a physiotherapy wow. student. And I absolutely loved that. You know, I think, and I never regret, although people say it's, you know, you went from being a physio to a firefighter, but I think, you know, one of the beautiful things about getting older is that you get to join all the dots of your experiences and actually what being a physio, you know, I practiced for, for really even when I became a firefighter, so I practiced for probably 15 years as a physiotherapist and I worked in chronic pain as well as in, in sort of more sporting and musculoskeletal areas. But what it taught me was uh, so much, you know, you put your hands on somebody to treat somebody and you release the neck and, the, and they start to cry. And it made me really realize the embodied experience, these emotional experiences that people hold in their body. And often when I was treating people, it was it's not because I'm doing exactly how many mobilizations of this area of somebody's spine or whatever that is helping them. It's because they're being cared for. And that therapeutic interaction between two people and even just, you know, people would start to tell their story just because they felt safe and cared for and they would often tell me so much about their life stories in that therapeutic interaction as a physiotherapist and that really kind of did also help me to go, move into that mental health space and to be able to see that background in physiotherapy really enabled me to have a much more holistic understanding of well-being and health and what that is and even my degree in physiology because I can understand the neurophysiology and I can understand that the very scientific kind of side of, of trauma and how it impacts our bodies and, and mental health and depression and, and neurotransmitters and, and all of those sorts of things, I can understand that. And that helps me to be able to then layer that onto the more lived experience side of things because I can underpin it 
underneath all that with that scientific understanding and the same with physiotherapy. So I think it's incredibly, it's been incredibly useful to me to have that background, to be able to see both the scientific side, but also now very much more so the storied side of a human experience and how we put those together. So where did your journey take you from there? So you did your degree, you practice physiotherapy. Yeah, so I graduated from a physiotherapy in 2000 and I worked for first in the hospital system for about a year and a half and then I worked in private practice and for sporting teams because I was you know sports was was kind of my thing and I thought that that's where I wanted to go and then I moved more into sort of chronic pain type area and then I joined the fire brigade in 2005 but because of our shift work I was able to continue working for about two days a week as a physiotherapist while I was also a firefighter. So I, I combined both of those for a while and it was only really in 2009 when I started to write my book or started to write that I stopped doing physiotherapy as much and so that I could focus on writing. And tell us about the writing. I mean, what took you, yeah, what took you down that path? You know, I think when my brother died, he had written a whole load of diaries about his experiences and they were written almost in a way that he wanted people to read them at some point. And I had held those diaries ever since his death. So he died in 1988 and I had held, brought those diaries with me across to Australia and I'd always had them thinking I wanted to do something with them and in a, really it started off as wanting to give him a voice for, for his pain and suffering. So I started transcribing his diaries which were just the most beautifully, eloquently written for somebody so young when he wrote them. And then as it kind of transpired I was going through quite a difficult time in my own life and a relationship breakdown that really impacted me. And kind of in a way made me all this resurgent grief from my past come up, but which I couldn't really understand at the time. And I, get, I used writing to help me to process my own emotions for what was going on at that time. And I think then it kind of that morphed into me writing my own life story down. And then ultimately it became a book, but that wasn't the intention when I wrote. So I think I did write very authentically because I didn't think that anyone was ever going to read it. And that was part of the value of it. And I think writing is such an incredibly valuable experience because you never think about your whole life story in, in one piece. You know, you have intermittent memories that you might think about at different times. But when you write, you have to put that in context and you have to make it make sense in, par in paragraphs and sentences. And that kind of helps it makes, helps you to make sense of your life and put all of those experiences together. And it's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle and it enabled me to have self-compassion and self-understanding that there's no way that I could have, had, have have that level of insight had I not spent that time just writing. And, and there's something lovely about just writing without there being any, you know, money involved or any, yeah. any career gain. It's just something that you just want to do. And it did turn into a book, which was really a dual story between my brother's experiences and my own of, of how we then make peace with grief and suicide. But that was not the initial intent when I started writing. And the book's called Standing on My Brother's Shoulders, Making Peace with Grief and Suicide. Yes, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And where can people get that book? On any bookstore? Yeah, it's, it's, it came out originally in 2015. And then it was actually translated into Mandarin and, to, and into French. And then I did a second edition, which was published in 2020. And that's available at Amazon and Book Depository and Booktopia and all of those. Would you say that was the beginning of your healing process or your recovery process? 
I think it had a huge impact. I mean, I think that process of writing at the same time as having like psychotherapy and, and, and um, speaking with psychologists, I think that that combination of two, so absolutely having that therapeutic guidance at the same time as investing, you know, I did all sorts of different approaches to help me and support me in lifestyle. You know, I was always very conscious of my my own physical health as well so so exercise and you know all of the other things and eating careful you know eating a healthy nutritional diet as well and so I did a lot of those things to support myself as well but I think really at the core of it was writing at the same time as having therapeutic guidance to to do that. You've done some amazing things throughout uh, your time and, and one of those was cycling was that just last year a year ago yes 5,000 kilometers unsupported yes from the west of australia to the east yes tell us about that experience yes it was actually almost a year ago we left on the 12th of march from steep point in western australia and it was really the the brainchild of a very good friend of mine sarah davis who we were kind of when we first came out of the first lockdown, we went and had breakfast and were eating a plate of chili scrambled eggs. <laughs> and somehow by the end of that chili scrambled eggs, I was going with her across Australia. And so, so she is in risk management. So she set up all the logistics and I was director of comms. And it really just evolved as this journey to, you know, our mission was how do we empower people to struggle well with life challenges in a way that it became, can become growthful rather than destructive. And I was raising money for Lifeline, mm -hmm. which obviously is a charity that I'm really passionate about. And having conversations, you know, with uh, through Fortum, I was meeting with different first responder agencies across um, Australia and just spreading that message of, you know, the services that Fortum offer and also Standby Support After Suicide, who I'm an ambassador for, which many people aren't aware of and the incredible work that they do in supporting people and communities who've been impacted by suicide and just those conversations along the way in the middle of regional Australia where people don't have access to the sort of services that we have in metropolitan areas. And, and I, you know, the people that we met across along the way were just incredible and, and that was some of the most valuable experiences really was, you know, when you've just cycled 100 kilometres and your bike weighs 70 kilos and you're carrying 12 litres of water and you've run out of water and it's 40 degrees and, you know, and you're just kind of going, oh, like now we've got our 10th puncher of the day and what are we going to do? And somebody just pulls up and goes, oh, do you want a hand? You know, we had one couple drive 600 kilometres to give us new tyres and, and those sorts of things that just gives you faith in human nature and that how how connecting that is and how fundamental to our well-being, just that sense of community and that people having your back. You raised $21,000 for, for that ride, which was absolutely amazing. Tell me, how long did it take you? It took two months, so 60 days. We wow. averaged, because Western Australia, Steep Point is really quite remote, so we were actually pushing bikes over sand dunes. And I think with the first 130 k's was really just sand and gravel, so that took us quite a lot of time. And then, yeah, we were after that we were averaging about 100 kilometres a day, so it was two months and just carrying everything with us, which really was yeah, it makes quite a significant difference. We discovered when you don't have support and you're carrying everything with you, makes it significantly more difficult than having a lightweight bike with nothing loaded on it. At some point during that first 130 k's of sand and rock, would you be sitting there saying to? Sarah, I think you said her name. What did you say? Sarah, uh, yeah. how did you talk me into this? Is this a good idea? And you're thinking, 
<laughs> we haven't even scratched the surface of 5,000 kilometres, but anyway. Yeah, I do, do, do remember looking at her going, this is your fault. But we did actually, we actually, we laughed our way through, through a lot of that. And that was, yeah, we did constantly make each other laugh. And yeah, as to how we would somehow manage to find a silver lining out of the most kind of fairly dire situations at certain times. Good on you. So then, so tell us, at what point did you transition from physiotherapy into fire and rescue? How did that happen? Obviously, you, you mentioned you took some time out to do some writing. You were getting some professional help for your your trauma that you were experiencing and the grief. How did you then end up in the fire and rescue? Was it back to the initial initial survey that said you should be a fireman? Yeah, I think I'd always held that in the in the back of my head, sort of since they'd planted that seed, and I, I'd always sort of had that there. And I'd been a physiotherapist for about five years, and I started. I was thinking about doing a master's in physiotherapy, and I just had this little seed, and I thought I must go. And so I sort of sought. I didn't know any firefighters at that time, so I started speaking to or seeking out people that I could speak to, and they all just said, "Best job in the world." You know, they loved it and I just thought I just wanted to – I loved physiotherapy but I really missed that really team kind of work of I'm working in a team and I'm actively problem-solving together. And and I always had a thirst for kind of adventure. You know, I always wanted to do slightly crazy things. So I just felt like there was something in me that wanted to just do that and give it a go and that's really what led me to apply and then I was really – fortunate enough to, to get through on, on the first attempt. So that's in Sydney, your pod? Yep. yep, yep. So I'm in Sydney and I've been, well, based at different stations around Sydney for the last 17 years. And, and talk us through the last 17 years. What, what roles did you start at and where are you at to, today? Yeah, so you, you start as a, a, obviously a recruit firefighter. So I spent three months at the Fire Brigade College, which was in Alexandria then, and then I went to the main city, biggest station in New South Wales, in the city and then was spent about four years at Darlinghurst and got my aerial qualification so I became an aerial operator so that's an, an extra qualification. I decided I'm much happier going up in the air than down into tunnels to be a rescue operator and I was very aware also as a rescue operator you have a lot of exposure to trauma in terms of cutting you know people out of cars and then and motor vehicle accidents and I was aware I had a level of awareness to go you know I'm not sure that that would be good for me so I knew that. And so I chose to do my aerial qualifications, which, which I really loved. And I, I so then went to Wallara for four years. I spent three years in the communication centre, taking triple zero calls and on the radios, which was a really good, gives you a huge insight into that kind of more higher level, how different emergency services work together and across the state, how all of our systems work. And so that was really interesting and, and a very different type of stress which I think we're, again, not really aware of, of that kind of vicarious trauma, again, that that triple zero call takers are exposed to and how stressful that is. And we know that, you know, when you have less control over the impact of that situation, that that you are much more likely to experience a sort of traumatic stress reaction. And as a call taker, you don't have a no control over what's happening on the ground. And so that can be incredibly stressful when you've got people screaming you know, help, help, my house is in fire, what shall I do? And you're trying to talk somebody through that with having no real knowledge of what's happening at the other end or no ability to actually, you know, do anything. It's a good point you make. So after three years of that, you then, where did you go from there? So I then went back to station. So I went to Mascot um, for a few years and then I'm actually at Maroubra Fire Station now. Tell us 
obviously it was in the forefront of your mind at some point with the, the personal experience coming into a, a first responder service that you that you were undertaking. How did that impact you and did you have support around that as you went through the career in the fire rescue? Yeah, I mean, to be completely honest, I don't think that I had really thought it through when I went into to become a firefighter of the sorts of trauma that I would be exposed to within the job and within the role. I don't think I'd really thought about that. I mean, I kind of had that awareness of maybe I didn't want to be a rescue operator, but I don't think I really thought about that. And I think that's something that we need to get better at, I think, at really preparing recruits for what they might potentially be exposed to and what might be their own personal triggers that they bring into the job that they might not have thought about and giving them skills to have better self-understanding and self-awareness. And I think we absolutely need to get better at doing that at recruit level and then building, supporting people to build those skills throughout their careers as well. Because that was something really that I actually just external to fire and rescue realised that I needed to engage and get, and get help and support. But I didn't do that certainly initially through fire and rescue and I wasn't aware that I was even able to do that for some time. And it's um, now we're, we're certainly much, much better at, at offering yeah. psychological support, uh, you know, without cost and, and without that kind of fear of is it going to impact my career. But at that time, that wasn't the case and I certainly wasn't aware of it. So I think we absolutely need to get better at training our recruits and building on skills that's through our life cycle so that we have better skills to process the potentially traumatic events that we attend and know what to do with them and I think we're not, we're not very good at, at teaching people those skills. Do you think that there'd be a bit of stigma with people applying for the job if they put down that they have some sort of previous traumatic experience or mental ill health? Do you think that's probably a part that's preventing people from owning up to it or, or being asked those questions? At the start they might think, oh they may not choose me because I haven't experienced with traumatic events. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that many people, and I've had people come to me and, who are applying and ask me, you know, should I should I say that I've experienced depression or, or or have had mental health struggles? And I know that you know we are much much better now at you know that that will if you divulge that you've had a mental health issue, that's not going to go against you in your application. But there's still that uh, perception that that would be the case, which I completely understand, and I think. Again, it's breaking down that stigma and having better understanding so that people really don't have that fear. And certainly whilst they're in service, we know that that's a huge thing. Of you know, every, There's very much that perception still of don't put it on my record because you know, I might not get that promotion or they'll take me out of the station or they'll take me out of, of the role that I'm in. Tell us about the importance of hearing from the people and having that, uh, that culture but the ability for people to feel like they're in a safe space they can talk about their mental health challenges within the service sector or the first responders. Yeah, I think that that's so, so, such an important space for us to be able to provide for people and how we do that. And again, something that I think we can get much better at because we know that 87% of firefighters from a survey that we did a few years ago will turn to their peers in the first instance. So how do we equip our peers and our, and our colleagues and, and firefighters on the ground level to be able to hold space and create a safe space so that someone can just tell their story without fear of being judged and that actually 
that's, you know, what I've learned from my research and from speaking to many firefighters is I don't need to, you know, inherently we're, we're people that like to fix because that's what we do. And so for us to then just really flip that and go, you know what, I'm not fixing, I'm just creating a safe space. And that actually when you allow someone the space to tell you their story, that that's incredibly healing. And, and so, every, so many of the firefighters that I spoke to at the end said thank you. And I hadn't done anything. All I had done was listen and ask a few questions, but they let them go wherever they wanted to go. And almost universally they said, you know, one of them said, I feel like I've had to start a session with a psychologist because that ability to just process as you speak without being judged almost helps people to re-script and integrate their experiences in a meaningful way for them, whatever that looks like. Yeah, you talk about listening deeply and and the importance of being able to just sit and listen, which is a really sounds simple, but in practice, I mean, it's it's pretty hard, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think people underestimate that listening is a skill, and a skill means that you can get better at it, and we can all get better at it. And, you know, I found it really interesting to listen to myself back from the interviews that I did with the firefighters for my research and to realize I thought that I was good at listening. And when I heard myself, I was like, wow, Tara, you're nowhere near as good as you thought that you were. And it really helped teach me to be able to, you know, sit with my own discomfort in silence better. And because to be out for us, often we will want to say something because we feel we should say something or it's a bit uncomfortable in that silence. But actually, people need that time to process. They need that silence to allow their brains to kind of flip over and think about what it is. And there's so much value in in that silence and that actually it's often about our own discomfort that we butt in or say something. And I certainly heard that in myself and, and it's really taught me to try to get better at listening and how incredibly powerful the skill of listening can be to create a healing space if you do it well. Tara, you're, you're, you're managing the, the psychological wellbeing program in Fire and Rescue. No, I, I, I had a stint of doing that back in 2014, but I'm actually not, um, okay. I, I'm no longer in that role. There is, actually, we've, got, we've expanded enormously, so we've got a, a big team of people now in those roles. In the, so my, my paid role is as a firefighter now. Okay. Well, how do you feel the service is doing in respect to the, the mental health aspect and, and incorporating living and learned experience in their programs to make sure that they're, they're effective and, and having successful outcomes for people in the force? I think we, 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 we've taken a lot of steps Absolutely, and our team has expanded enormously, but I think we've got a very, very, very long way to go, and especially in that that actually listening to the voices of people with lived experience and listening to the voices that are least heard and how we engage those voices that I don't think we do that at all, you know, and certainly not in a meaningful way. Really from that, you know, if if you look at what co-creation and co-design processes actually are, we don't do that. And people might, sometimes we might tick that box and say we're doing co-design, but they're not really doing that. And I think we need to learn what co-creation and co-design is in terms of how we integrate the voices of people with lived experience at every step of the design, the implementation, the evaluation of all of our programs. So not just in a kind of token focus group of let's just hear what people think. You know, that's not co-design. What co-design is, is you know, from that co-creation of that first idea 
of what it is that we might be trying to do. We need to involve, involve people with lived experience at that level and all the way through. And that's why I suggested, you know, in the talk that I gave yesterday that we look outside of our own space to people that have expertise. And there's an organization called Roses in the Ocean that really is absolutely leading the way in terms of they've just developed a suite of resources on how we integrate the voice of lived experience, specifically in the field of, of suicide. But we can learn so much from that to actually use co-design within our organizations and i we we definitely don't do that or certainly not in fire and rescue we don't do that at the moment and we really need to do that if we're going to make big steps and leaps and bounds towards better supporting our people that's a good point and what other things or what other changes would you like to see in order to progress and and help address mental health as it relates to fire and rescue you know, I think it, it is about having that whole of organisation response. You know, we know that we need a whole of government response if we're going to actively support people, certainly in, again in, in that world of suicide prevention. And I think that whole of organisation response, so we're not having those really siloed kind of program development and, and siloed of, of ideas and programs so that we're actually working together across different directorates because certain fire and rescue is a very very big complex organization where often people will work within their own directorates so say within health and safety but maybe not having that really good cross communication with organizational development with education and training with professional standards you know and that's what we need to do better because mental health sits across all of those domains and so we have to actually embed our training and our skills within our education and training process. And at the moment, we, we have embedded, you know, operational procedures and training, but we don't embed our mental health training throughout that life cycle. And we need to embed that. And that means working across all areas of the organization and to really, really walk the talk in terms of prioritizing, hey, we have to keep our workforce healthy and well if we're going to be able to actually fulfill our role most effectively as well as provide a safe workplace because we can't provide a safe workplace if we're not really adequately supporting the health and well-being of our people. And do you think it's a top-down approach or do you think Fire Rescue are doing a good job with that? Do you think it's a bottom-up approach, getting the peers and everyone to just you know drop the stigma and try and make it okay in a safe space to be able to talk about it without judgment? I mean, where do you, what do you think – is the best way to address those. I mean, I think it, it certainly, you know, it, traditionally it has been a top-down approach. I do think we are shifting and we have, you know, there, there has been in our um, strategic priorities a focus on mental health over the last few years. So I think that that is changing. But I think within a paramilitary organisation, it's very difficult because the very nature of our organisation is that it's structured in that hierarchical way where the first thing that you do when you speak with anyone is look at their shoulder and see what's on what epaulets they've got on and then call someone sir and that is a huge huge barrier to having human conversations so we need to find a way to get around that to actually work from the ground up and and kind of sit outside of that paramilitary structure and that command and control structure which our whole the nature of our work is based around and that's what makes it very difficult so I think we need to look to other organizations I think you know if we look at Queensland Ambulance Service their priority one program is really the gold standard and we know that from the 2018 Beyond Blue survey that came out that that they have the gold standard mental health programming and we should be looking to that and their program sits independently of HR and um, IR and that that's really 
significant, important, and how much that that enables them to do a good job in terms of supporting the health and well-being of people and having a good enough budget to be able to, at that highest level, go, you know, to argue for the case that we need that budget and we need that recurring budget so that we can invest in it to keep our people safe and really set up, in a way, break down everything that we have and rebuild and build in that evaluation of, oh, what is what we're doing actually working? And we can only know that if we take proper baseline measures, we evaluate our processes and we evaluate the outcomes of what we're doing and we have a very solid program logic of what it is that we're trying to achieve. No, that's a good point. And tell us, what do you think it, where do you think we're at as, with regards to veterans transitioning back to civilian life after service? How do you think we're going there and, and what improvements do you think need to be made with that? Yeah, again, I think it's a huge area that we're starting to make big inroads into and just suddenly realising, you know, we know that when people retire from service, you know, especially in the in first responders and not just military services but first responders, that their mental health is significantly worse. So rates of, of PTSD in retired firefighters um, and first responders are up around, you know, 28%. So they're, they're, And we know... We haven't really been very good at tracking suicide, but, but you know, there's emerging evidence to suggest that when after service is when people might well take their own lives, as well as during service, but more significantly, the mental health issues that people carry when they retire, you know, will often come out in retirement because you've lost that sense of identity. You no longer have the uniform. You don't have the cohesive support of, of having worked in this organisation for often for years and years and years and years. So I think, again, the work that Fortum Australia is doing in that transition space is absolutely invaluable of how do we support people to transition out of what is so much more than just a job and that it's very difficult for people outside of the emergency services to understand why being an emergency service worker and wearing that uniform is such a part of your identity and in a way it creates kind of this armour of I have this inherent meaning because I wear this uniform and people look to me and perceive me differently because they see that I'm a rescuer and I'm going to help them and I have strength. And then when I take that uniform off, suddenly I don't have that reinforcement and that sense of identity anymore. And I've also got accumulated trauma from however many years I've been in the service that's, that I still carry with me as a person and as a human being when I leave. So I think we need to absolutely make more inroads into that area. Tara, as we as we sort of start to finish out, what, what's what's coming up for you? What's what's the exciting things ahead? Do you have planned any more books? What are you up to? I always have ten books in my head. Um, how many of them actually get written, I don't know. But um, I always have lots and lots of books in my head. And unfortunately, one doesn't get paid to write books. But I would I obviously I, my really main focus at the moment is to finish my PhD. And you know, for me to be able to have a greater voice in that area, I really need to finish my PhD and, you know, and to give back to the people that gave me so much through taking part as well and to say, look, I'm doing something with what you have taught me and what I've learned from you. So to be able to finish my PhD and ultimately to be able to write a book from my PhD that has meaning so that you don't need to be an academic or a clinician to be able to understand why it's important and for it to have meaning. So I do hope that I can write a book and continue to do speaking around my PhD and what I find from that. And that's really the main goal and to use my PhD results to really develop suicide preparedness and postvention programs for first responders. And how can people get in touch with you? So through my website is tarajlal.com. 
and my email is on that website and my social media, LinkedIn. So, yes, I'm more than happy for anyone to contact me through my website. Tara, it's been really good talking to you. It's been very insightful. We appreciate you sharing your story with us and the amazing things you've been up to so far in your career. I'm sure there's more. Is there anything you want to say in closing? No, just thank you for the opportunity and it's been great to be a part of the conference and be able to share, I guess, my passions for for where I come from in terms of the voice of lived experience and how much we can learn from that if we choose to engage in it properly. So, you know, it's just been a really great opportunity to share that and to meet so many incredible people here as well, working in the space, doing incredible work from all all sorts of different angles. And it's really great to see everybody come together and actually share that knowledge and experience. Well, thank you very much. And we appreciate those words and thanks for your time. Thank you, Sam. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.